My name is Nan Brewer, and I'm the Lucian M. Globinger Curator of Works on Paper at the Eskenazi Museum of Art. I'm going to be talking about a series of untitled prints by Jackson Pollock. The romantic mythologizing of the American artist Jackson Pollock rivals that of other so-called torture geniuses from the realm of art, literature, film, and music, such as Vincent van Gogh, Sylvia Plath, Robin Williams, and Kurt Cobain. How did Pollock's fame reach such an exalted, albeit tragic, height? For one thing, he died prematurely at the age of 44 and through sudden and partly self-inflicted means. He was killed in a single-car drunk driving accident when he hit a tree at 80 miles per hour near his home in Long Island. But it was really his shocking painting style which broke down the traditional boundaries of art that cemented his legacy. Pollock painted on unstretched canvas on the floor rather than on an easel. He used enamel house paint rather than oils. He used a stick dipped in paint rather than a brush. He painted abstract swirls rather than people, places, or things. Pollock had also become a kind of media darling His imagery was found in popular picture magazines, as well as being the frequent butt of cartoonists. An infamous 1949 Life magazine article asked, is he the greatest living painter in the United States? While a 1956 Time magazine story disparagingly dubbed him Jack the Dripper. His career is far more complex than these simple dictums, as reflected in a suite of six prints in the Speed Museum of Art's exhibition, Picasso to Pollock, Modern Masterworks from the Eskenazi Museum of Art. Pollock was a trained artist who studied at the Art Students League in New York with the famous regionalist painter Thomas Hart Benton, whose Indiana murals are now installed on the Indiana University campus in Bloomington. Pollock even assisted Benton and posed for his American Today murals that were originally for the New School of Social Research and are now installed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Pollock absorbed from Benton not only his penchant for a gritty social realist style focused on rural themes, but more importantly, the older artist's complex theories on the mechanics of form organization and painting. While Pollock ultimately abandoned the older artist's representational style and subject matter, he vigorously applied his ideas about the organization of energies to his new abstract action painting. After all, you can't break away from the past without first understanding the old traditions. Pollock knew how to draw. Created in black ink on white paper, three vertical and three horizontal, these untitled prints are on standardized sheets of paper, 23 and a half inches by 16 inches in size. They look like drippy ink drawings, but are in fact photographically derived silkscreen prints after a series of black enamel paintings that Pollock produced in 1951. It was the sculptor, Tony Smith, who suggested that Pollock might try making prints from his painting, even speculating that he might get as much as $50 a piece for them. 
Smith took the photos of the black paintings, and it was Pollock's brother, Sanford McCoy, who owned a commercial print shop, who helped him print and publish them in a limited edition portfolio. Pollock had experimented with printmaking earlier in his career, but he was primarily a painter who liked the physicality of applying paint directly to the canvas without preparatory drawing or pre-planning. Printmaking, by its very nature, is about the careful preparation and planning of a block, stone, or screen known as a matrix, and the use of machinery to make multiple images, thus removing the hand of the artist, the very antithesis of abstract expressionism. Because every color needs a separate matrix, it is expensive and difficult to print in multiple colors. This could be very limiting for an artist like Pollock, who built up thick layers of pigment, as seen in the Eskenazi Museum's painting number 11 from 1949. The choice of the black paintings made the transition to printmaking a little easier. Since Pollock could work with his brother, who understood the technical aspects of the photo silkscreen process, he was able to try this new and relatively modern medium for the making of fine art prints. Pollock made some adjustments to the screens, thus they were not exactly replicas of the paintings. The differing medium also created new effects. The paintings were on unsized, tan-colored sailcloth, while the prints are on a smooth white paper. The thin black house paint used in the paintings was also softer and more subtly tonal, while the prints have a flatter, more uniform, hard edge color that emphasizes their decorative pattern and negative space. The prints are also about a quarter or less the size of the paintings. The black paintings and corresponding prints were displayed together at Betty Parsons Gallery in New York in 1951. After the show, the six-print suite served as a kind of mini-retrospective and enabled viewers to compare and contrast the prints in a more compressed space than would have been possible with the much larger paintings. There is a rhythm created between the prints and across the series. The three vertical pieces seem to suggest a seated figure. The last vertical plate on the far right in the Speed's installation, based on painting number nine, includes hints of an extended hand, a leg, and a foot in a grotesque head. The female subject suggests that Pollock was aware of his friend and abex rival Willem de Kooning's Woman One, which he was working on at the same time. De Kooning's first solo show in New York in 1948 had also been of black and white paintings. Although Pollock supposedly criticized de Kooning for remaining chained to figurative imagery, he too returned to more representational forms near the end of his career. He wrote to a friend that his black pores, as he called them, had some of my early images coming through, much of which was based in Jungian dream theory in the traditions of surrealism. The bulbous forms in the other two vertical plates, while more abstracted, also suggest body parts. The most readable imagery in the series can be found in the final horizontal print in this installation. Based on painting number seven, it shows a split composition with vegetative reed-like shapes on the left and a playful Picasso-esque standing female figure on the right. Another divided image in the series from painting number 27 
includes two stacked heads on the right, the one on the top being a little more distorted than the one on the bottom, and what might be loosely interpreted as a crouching figure on the left. Pollock repeated this type of organization in similar imagery in one of his final paintings, Portrait in a Dream. The same bending directional forest in the left-hand section can be seen in the middle horizontal print. From a painting called Number 8, or Black Flowing, it is the series' most abstract image, although the title may suggest the flow of pigment or the flow of the artist's gestural movement across the picture plane. The drawing style, in a comparison with the other images in the series, still encourages me to try and draw out some natural forms from the tangle of lines and ink splotches. Contemporary collectors, at least those interested in non-objective art, found the mixture of semi-representational imagery, a lack of color, and more confined composition in Pollock's monochromatic work to be confusing, since it differed from his iconic all-over drip paintings, and neither the black paintings nor the prints sold at the time. While they are still less well-known than his other work, several recent exhibitions have attempted to bring them to greater light. Although the black work's darkness may reflect a period of depression in the artist's life during the first half of 1951, he was well aware that he was trying something different and counter to popular perceptions and expectations of his work, joking to a friend that they would upset Quote, the kid who thinks it is simple to splash a Pollock out, unquote. It was a kind of in-your-face effrontery to the critics and the public alike, perhaps reflecting the pressures of fame and the desire to avoid being pigeonholed. Others have felt that Pollock was traumatized by being filmed by Hans Namath and had lost confidence in his revolutionary approach, thus retreating into a slightly older style and subject matter. Whichever is the case, by 1953, three years before his death, Pollock had essentially stopped painting and sunk deep into alcoholism. This series of prints is the only graphic work to document this late phase of his career. However, Pollock made a relatively small addition. Only 25 of each image were created although when they were brought to Pollock to sign a number at a dinner party, he apparently couldn't remember the number that had been produced and wrote down 30. Fitting into his tragic mythology, it is said that he was drunk at the time. Whatever the reason, he inscribed the prints in black ink, making his mistake impossible to correct. A second set of the prints was made from the original screens in 1964, eight years after the artist's death. These were printed under the supervision of McCoy's widow and authorized by Pollock's widow, Lee Krasner, with an estate stamp. There were 50 sets of these unsigned posthumous prints. While the later works can be found in numerous museums, the earlier, more desirable signed prints are hard to find and complete sets are exceedingly rare. Only four such first edition groups are known to be held by U.S. museums. One at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., one at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, one at the Kemper Art Museum in St. Louis, 
and one at the Eskenazi Museum of Art in Bloomington, Indiana. The Eskenazi set was purchased in 1975 from a dealer who'd acquired it directly from McCoy's son, Pollock's nephew. We are delighted to be able to share these rare treasures by a great, if not the greatest, American master with the Louisville audience. <music> 